Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Well, what everyone has been waiting for is finally here. At long last, Season 8 of The Meat Eater Show, hosted by my friend and colleague Stephen Ranella is out. It dropped a couple days ago, so be sure to head on over to Netflix to watch all of the new episodes over there. There are plenty of exciting new hunts and characters, including some of my fellow Meat Eater crew members who go out for their first ever hunts with Steve. It is gripping content, so head on over to Netflix and catch yourself some Meat Eater Season 8. Jude Mile is a chef, industry advisor, and author of the Outback Chef Cookbook. I first learned of Jude while looking for new reading material at the library. I was immediately intrigued by her knowledge and appreciation of Australia's native ingredients, so I reached out to see if she'd be willing to sit down with me. In this episode of Anchored, Jude and I discuss the history of native plants and spices, how to use them, and the basics of safe sourcing. Jude sells all of the spices we talk about in this episode, so while it would be great to inspire foragers and chefs to use the plants in their own region, you can purchase hers to add to your cabinet as well. I was born in, in Gippsland in Warrigal and a family lived in Druin, which is actually not too far from where we are in Melbourne. It's probably about a 40-odd minute drive out into the country. Um, and then from there, we moved 
to a citrus orchard in Cobram. So, you know, we had very much a country upbringing um, and then moved to Melbourne later on in the piece. But I think still, I know my father was always very keen for me and my mum too to sort of have that country feel and because I was very much involved in horses and country and things, you know, I used to still ride and do most things that country people did anyway so it was lovely and then did you have any culinary background in your family or well apart from from growing certainly you know growing food you know background all throughout my family is is in growing food grafting plants doing all sorts of things um my mother was an amazing cook she did a lot of courses at that stage it wasn't so common for women to be chefs and also she had you know, family, there's four kids. But she did a lot of courses. She did a lot of cake decorating. Um, She had a catering business for a while. So, look, we grew up very much cooking and, you know, looking at food and recipes and she was pretty incredible. She, at one stage there, she did a lot of Chinese cooking, was looking at a lot of the different Chinese cooking styles. At that stage, it was very much a meat and three veg sort of brigade, whereas we'd be having stir fries and mum would be introducing things like seaweed and all that. And we were going, oh, okay. Um, no, no, it's good for you. Eat it up. So, you know, we I was, I was introduced to a lot of different food. And when we first came down from the country, dad was in the Vic market in fruit and vegetables. So he used to bring home a lot of different things that weren't readily around and available. So, yeah, I had a really varied childhood with food, that's for sure. And I was cooking at a fairly early age as well. And like like my sister, we used, to, we used to do a lot of cooking and a lot of cooking for the family meal. That was normal. But then I did get interested in confectionery for some unknown reason. I'm not, <laughs> to me, I'm not too sure. And then I went over to Germany and studied confectionery over there and got a diploma in confectionery. And that was very good from the, I guess, really the scientific point of view, understanding the ingredients and the background to ingredients. Uh, so then I set up a business and I was making chocolates and confectionery all different sorts. And the retired confectioner, he came in and worked for me, with me. I think I did a very hard three years apprenticeship on the factory floor, tipping fudges and making chocolates and all all manner of things. So I learned a lot. And then from there, I guess I progressed a lot further with just food generally. And um, then when my kids were growing up, at that stage, then I started working from home and I was doing a lot of cake decorating, the usual wedding cakes and celebration cakes of all sorts. Um, I still think I can make roses and orchids in my sleep. You know, the little <laughs> sugar flowers that go on top. It was it was incredible. So from there, I was starting to think, look, I'd really like to get back into business again. And art is another thing that has always been something that I've, I've really enjoyed. And then a friend of mine said to me, oh, I know a guy's got an art gallery in, in town that's in the middle of Melbourne. And he said, you really need someone. Can you work a computer? I said, yeah, I think I can work a computer. You need someone to you know, just pull things together in this art gallery. It's an Aboriginal art gallery. And I said, oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. So I went in there and we, we had a chat and he said, oh, look, I really only need anyone part-time. And I said, well, yeah, part-time is really just what I'm after because I want to get a business going. He said, okay. And he said, how about, because there's a fair bit of work, you work full-time and then once we get on top of all this work, then go part-time. I said, yeah, that's fine. So from day one, I was full-time for the next 10 years. Absolutely loved it. The work in the gallery is fantastic. Learning about 
um, all the Indigenous artwork, the paintings, where they came from, you know, going out back, centre Western Desert. It was absolutely just mind-blowing for me. I loved every moment of it. We had a lot of fun in the gallery. And I learned so much about this country through those those paintings. Every painting tells a story. Every painting had had something to offer. And yeah, I couldn't get enough of it. It was fantastic. So when I did finally leave the gallery, really Outback Chef, food, art, native food, it was just all a logical progression for me. So that's that's how it all came about, really. I love it. Now, is this <laughs> did you have an interest in the Aboriginal history beforehand? Yeah, look, it it always fascinated me. Uh, but see, when I went to school, we didn't learn so much about that side of the history. It was more from European settlement onwards. And it always fascinated me. The artwork always fascinated me, but I was just a bit daunted by it all. It, it, there was, there was, I could see that there was a lot there, but I just really didn't didn't really grasp the significance of the artwork. And it w- wasn't until I was just 100% immersed in it that, you know, then it's the, then all these stories start to happen and you go, wow, this is an incredibly rich heritage that we've got that has just been so overlooked for way too long. Yeah. So when you were studying art and starting to be, uh, I guess, spending time with a lot of people who, I mean, a lot of the Aborigines, I never know what to say, but I did podcast um, a, a guy named Nigel in my last episode. Uh-huh. And and he said he doesn't care if we if I call him an Aboriginal, an Aborigine or whatever. He just prefers to be called Nigel. But when you, <laughs> that sounds fair enough. <laughs> when you were hanging out, uh, though, in this new way of life, were you, who was teaching you about the edible food and, and what you could consume out there? Some of it, from my point of view, was a bit hit and miss, just sort of seeing. I, I guess really when, when, when you go out back, of course, you know, the people that are living out there in the remote areas, they can tell you what to eat and you start to learn about it. Because really, you might see, for example, a little berry on a tree. You don't know if that berry is ripe as green or is it ripe as red or yellow or or what what it's at. And I often use the, the um, equivalent, you know, if we have a banana, we know when it's very green, it's, it's not going to taste that good. We know when it's a little bit underripe. Some people like to eat them then. We know when it's really ripe, when it's yellow. And then once it starts to turn brown, well, we might as well start making banana cake out of it because it's really, you know, past that that eating date. We know every stage of that banana. With Australian native food, with a lot of the fruits, berries, nuts, we, we really, unless we've, we've sort of grown up with them, or, or really studied it, we really don't know when we can eat them. And in some cases, with a lot of the, the fruits, say, for example, bush tomato, which is a desert plant, it's a, it's a sort of a low-lying shrub that grows up. When it's green, it, it can be a little bit poisonous, so it's going to give you a really bad stomach upset if you start eating it too much. It's really not going to be good for you. If you've never seen it before, you really don't know. You just think, oh, they look really good. It's not until they're sort of gone to red and looking quite shriveled, that they're ready to eat. And that's the, another word for that, a common name for that is called the desert raisin because they look just like little raisins or sultanas, you know, with their, they're sort of very dark red and all shriveled up. And that's the time when you can eat them. So those kind of things you just have to learn. And often I, I you know, I'll get people coming to say, oh, I really just want to go out in the bush and I want to just be able to pick things and eat them. And look, that's all very well and I understand how... That sounds amazing, but 
If you don't know what you're eating, you're better off not to eat because some things can be quite poisonous. You know, sometimes you have to eat a heap of it, but others can, you know, really upset you really quickly. So you're better off if you go if you're doing that to go with someone that you know who knows what they're talking about, or otherwise not, you know, just just take it easy with it. So I guess from my part because I sell native food now I you know I stick with the ones that I know that people can eat um, they can incorporate in their everyday cooking and just trying to bring it forward that way yeah tell me what the outback chef was when you started out okay so outback chef was very much when it first started involved in just herbs and spices so it was uh, a limited range lemon myrtle pepper, pepper leaf, pepperberry, a um, little bit of quandong, some wattle seed. And at that stage, I was living up in Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And I thought, okay, let's let's get going with this. And I'd, you know, you'd get out the new clean bags, you put a little bit of samples of lemon myrtle and wattle seed and all your bits in and you just go knocking on doors to try and get sales. Initially, that, that was it. And of course, everyone said no. No one wanted to know about native food. That was that that was going back, you know, maybe more than ten years now, or it was more than ten years ago. And because people just didn't know what to do with it, and they kind of related native food as something that you might eat around or see around the campfire, this eighties campfire setting. They never related it as something that could be part of everyday cooking. Even the chefs, you know, no one really know, knew what was going to come of native food, and. It was one of those things I thought, wow, what are, what are we going to do here? This is just, you know, if you made a dollar fifteen a day, you'd be laughing because really the, the sales the sales weren't that, that big. And I, for me, with native food, I've always found that the flavours are amazing. They're very strong. They're very pungent. They really pack a punch. But I've always felt that native food belongs right at the top part of the on, on any menu, it, it's it's beautiful, it's sophisticated, and it can be there. But it was a matter of, of being able to make it, make that climb. And I remember thinking one night, how am I going to sell this stuff? I just don't know what to do. And then I thought, I know. You know, it's one of those funny things you have where you wake up about 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the idea strikes. Yeah, and I thought, a curry. Everyone knows what to do with a curry. Oh. So I thought, I'll make I'll make some curries and just incorporate some native food into the curries. Hey, People- that's a great idea. That's what I thought at the time too. So anyway, we I got three curries made, Outback Bush Curry, Australian Red Curry and Australian Yellow Curry. So we co- incorporated things like lemon myrtle and the pepper leaves and you know, so aniseed myrtle and, and so it goes on. And look, to this day, I'm still selling the curries and they've been very popular. So I'm pretty I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I export the curries now over to Japan. So we sell them over there and um, someone's just taking some curries over to India. So I'm thinking, yay, curries to India. <laughs> are they like, are they a paste or are they just a spice mix? No, a spice mix. I've just tried to keep them really good, robust curries. So yeah, we're still making them and they're still going strong and um, yeah, increasing the spice mix mixtures and and going along well there. So from from the curries that started to open a few more doors. Um, I made some fruit pastes and now I make a range of teas. And again, using traditional elements that you might do. For example, I make a, a roasted wattle seed and pepperberry chai tea. We were talking about this before we were rolling this grounding sort mm. of feeling and in, in going and finding it and being excited to find it. And I think it's really important now we're we live in such a, a fast-paced, technology-driven world and everything has to be instant. Everything has to sort of happen straight away. And I think sometimes we get so 
carried away with all that of what we have to do and and who we should be looking after and attending to and 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 the expectations are that we'll be answering our emails and our phone calls straight away and all this manner all this manner of stuff that you tend to lose track with the fact of just sitting down enjoying a cup of tea and just taking your time to observe because we lose I think we have lost track of of our relationship with the land very much particularly when you live in a city you you do there, there's there's so many there's so much happening around you and I, I think from an emotional and a spiritual point of view I think it's really important just to bring yourself back to ground level in so many ways I think it's I think it's a good thing to do yeah, yeah. I think it I think it has, absolutely has to happen right now mm. it's always astonishing to me when I see people walk by plants or weeds yep to go and get a Tylenol and they've just walked right by a bunch of different herbs that could help them with mm. their ailment and mm. they go and they pop a bunch of chemicals yeah we we seem to have grown or have got a lot more confidence in what we buy over the counter than what we can sort of pick and harvest and cook ourselves. Um, you know, if you go go and pick some herbs and spices and like we're just talking about dry them out, people think, oh, no, I'll go and buy them a bag from the supermarket because all of a sudden it's someone else telling you what you should be doing rather than what you – than you relating to to nature, I think. You know, I've heard stories where people, you know, like with peas coming in little pea pods and shelling peas, thinking that peas just come in a plastic bag out of the freezer. You know, some just do not know even the background to some of the most basic of of fruit and vegetables and where they come from and how they grow. This is why it's so important that we talk about these things. Now, I have your book, The Mm -hmm. Outback Chef. Yes. Do you know it's damn near impossible to find? It's out of print at the moment, and yes, I do know, and I've been speaking to the publishers just to get another copy because I've had a lot of people asking me about it and wanting to get it. So it will come out again, and we will put the next next sort of version out because I love doing that book. It oh, was fantastic. And it's beautiful. I found one on eBay in Australia, and he was asking <laughs> some exorbitant price. It was the only one I could find, and I really did search high and low. It was really important to me to have a book that, if people wanted to cook at home, that I produce really simple recipes. And again, it goes back to, okay, if we make a lasagna, we can put some bush tomato, we can put some pepper in it. You know, it's all the recipes are recipes, I think, that a lot of people already know how to do. And it's about incorporating native food into that everyday thing. So I kept the whole thing fairly basic deliberately. Then the, uh, the other thing that was really important to me with the book was to tell a bit of the story about native food. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And uh, two beautiful artists that I've known, Therese and Sarita King, I've known them for a long time. Um, and they they grew up with, with their artist father, uh, Bill King Jangler, Aboriginal man, who, who took them right through the desert up Catherine, right up to Darwin. So they learned a lot about the countryside and the elements and, and why the elements made the plants grow and the whole story. So they allowed me to put some of their beautiful paintings in the book just to sort of give that description, you know, fire. We need a fire. We need the fire going through the bush to regenerate plant growth. Obviously, we need water, you know, all those kind of things. So I I wanted to give a little bit of the story so people have have a, a bit more of the grounding about what, 
you know, where the food's come from and what it's about. Then um, some of my botanical artist friends too, they did some beautiful paintings. So we incorporated that. And again, for me, art and food always work together. And often when I'm giving talks, I talk about art and food and Indigenous art. I, that That's my thing. I combine the two. For me, they work hand in hand. They're part of life. <laughs> so um, we did that. And then just, you know, brief descriptions of, of plants and the way they use them. And then um, at the back of the book, I included a lot of chefs that I've been working with because they're they're starting to bring native food in into their menus and really doing some very creative, very amazing things. So I, I really wanted their story to be told as well. So that's kind of how it all came about. I told New Holland about it when they first started and they said, Yep, we like the sound of that. That sounds great. So we 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 moved on from there. Yeah, you garnered quite a bit of media attention. Yeah. And they were all raving reviews. The only criticism I read was that the media didn't give you enough credit. <laughs> that's really all that I read. Oh, that's it. very nice of them. <laughs> yeah, that you just didn't get enough um, attention for it. But yeah, you got some raving reviews for that book. Thank you. Are you Thank planning you. on doing another one? Yeah, I really like writing books. I really, I really did enjoy it. It's working with words and playing around with them. Yeah, I, I found I had a lot of fun with it. You know, the hard work is is there with it and um, the editor kind of just keeps you on the straight and narrow. But creating recipes, you know, talking about food, writing about it, yeah, it's I'd definitely love to do another one. You know, at the moment, time is a little bit against me, but I, I really think, you know, down the track, maybe next year, you know, might might get on and start doing something more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of the things in the book, if that's all right. Sure. I'm really fascinated by the myrtle species. Yep. I was telling you earlier before we were rolling, the lemon myrtle tree has blown my mind. You know, I'd heard about it. Yeah. And when I went to go and finally see this tree that everyone was raving about, mm -hmm. it, it had some little white flowers, but it was mostly leaves. And mm. I realized I'm not looking at, you know, a lemon tree. This is... It's these leaves putting yes. out this incredible smell. Yes. I use them for oils and marinades. I use them for teas. I use them for medicinal purposes. I even use it as, as, a, as a balm. I use it as bug repellent. I use it for everything. And I am just astounded at how much comes out of the leaf and not the fruit. Yep. And the more I look in, into different things in Australia, the more I'm finding that that tends to be a common case for a lot of the species here. The eucalypt, I mean, a lot of these species, it's in the leaf. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, the essential oil is in the leaf and it's really pungent. I mean, lemon myrtle is extremely pungent. Like you say, you can use it everything from cooking right the way through to insect repellent and it has been used for that. Lemon myrtle makes the most amazing cordial. I mean, even quite simply um, with just putting some dried lemon myrtle into water and just let cold water and just let it seep in the fridge overnight, straining the lemon myrtle out. You've just got a beautiful drink that's really, really healthy. Mm, you can add some honey into that. It's like the perfect infusion. Go for it. Yeah, anything. I mean, the tea that you're drinking at the moment is, is a beautiful combination of lemon myrtle, green tea and ginger. And and But the lemon myrtle in that almost tastes like there's a, there's a honey overtone in it. I think somehow that just that just works. But lemon myrtle really packs a punch. So I have heard people said I use this amount of lemon myrtle in my cooking, and I'm going, oh, how'd you go? And they said it was a bit strong. I said, yeah, you you only need such a small amount. So you've got to start with all this with being fairly conservative in what in in the way you use it. Um, but look, one of the 
the best meals I had was was ages ago. A friend of mine, he actually caught a coral trout, this beautiful big fish. And um, we had uh, we we cooked it over a barbecue, and we had some paper bark, we had some lemon myrtle, we had some pepper berries. I think there was a few vegetables that we found in the in the bottom of the fridge. We thought, oh yeah, let's put those in as well. Wrapped it all up in the paper bark and put it on on the barbecue, and just let it cook. It was absolutely superb, and the lemon myrtle just just came through so beautifully. Yeah. Oh, you're getting me hit because I want to talk to you about paper bark too. Mm. But just this leaf thing, I, I think one of the things that surprised me the most, not not just about the lemon myrtle, but even like the raspberry. A lot of my listeners are from North America. Yep. Raspberry leaves are used for a lot of teas and, and various concoctions. Oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that we get so distracted by the berry yep. that we don't realize that a lot of the... I don't, I mean, yeah, I guess flavor too. Yes. Flavor and, and vitamins are in the leaves. Absolutely. So what what other species around here have that situation where it's not necessarily the berry but the leaves? Well, um, we've got lemon myrtle. We've got anise myrtle. It, does that have an anise seed? Like I think or is it a different it's, species? No, it's a different species. So it has a little flower. Again, I'll give you some of that to smell later on. That That is just beautiful, this beautiful soft aniseed flavour. I think people either love or hate aniseed. So, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, but I find in cooking, say if you're with prawns or something like that, a little bit of aniseed myrtle is just absolutely beautiful. Um, then I've got um, one here called curry myrtle and that's, a again, that same family, Bacchusia family, and that's got a really strong aromatic curry flavor. Really? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, one of my favorites is another one called strawberry gum leaf. Now, I hadn't heard of this until you, because there's, there are, I'm assuming gum is a eucalypt species, yes, right? Yes, yes. There's over 600 species of eucalypt tree. There's a lot of species out uh, there. Oh, it is. It's a little overwhelming for somebody, yeah. honestly, coming into this country. But that one obviously has a beautiful sound to it. It's a strawberry. Yep. Does it taste like strawberries? It it's in, it's got a very beautiful sort of berry flavor, berry flavor and aroma, soft berry flavor and aroma. Um, sort of raspberry berry, but eucalypt as well. Okay. So it's and it's soft and it to make say desserts with a, you know where you're making ice cream or something say with a creamy texture it just it's it's fantastic but then again i mean i've cooked strawberry gum leaves with things like sweet potato just bake them in the oven and put some of the leaves in with some salt and pepper that that beautiful flavor comes through and just sort of turns the sweet potato into into something else again so you know there's a lot of different leaves around that you can do um pepper leaf as well so is that the red barked one that you have? Yeah, yeah. It's it's got a, a very bright red stem and very dark green leathery leaves. Okay. Now is that it looked like a eucalypt species? Is, is it? No, no. It's it's not a eucalypt. It is it is um, Tasmania lanceolata. So it, it grows in Tasmania, and both the leaf and the berry from from the tree are used. I mean, there are some growing in Victoria, well, so as well. So it likes you know quite a cold climate. Now the Berries themselves have got a really hot chili-like flavour. They're extremely, extremely hot. The leaves do have that that chili flavour, but not anywhere near as hot. So they're peppery, but they have got that little bit of a eucalypt overtone with them to do it. 
But yeah, they're amazing. So they are used a lot and they're becoming increasingly popular. Yeah. How does a person experiment with this stuff without hurting themselves? Is there something, I mean, I know there are leaves that can hurt somebody or can cause issues with their, with their stomach, Mm. but with the eucalypt and the myrtle species, is there anything that can hurt you? Like, can you eat all 600 species or will you end up dying? Um, I don't know if you'd end up dying. I think sometimes you'd have to eat bucket loads. But, I mean, every, <laughs> everyone is different in, in the way that they respond. But, yeah, not all species are edible. So, again, it comes back to what I was talking about before where you, you really have to know what you're trying and what, what you're eating. Plus the fact of, of things like lemon myrtle, you only need such a little bit to create a flavour. Um, otherwise it's way too strong, otherwise it's overwhelming and then that flavour becomes not actually that nice because you're just sort of really, you know, punching it out and and that's not so enjoyable. So, you know, I think just to use it, you know, like any herb or spice, you know, if if you're using bay leaves or if you're using cinnamon or nutmeg or any of those things, you I guess really we know pretty much off pat how much we can use in our cooking that's going to get the flavour that we're after. When you first start using Australian natives, if you haven't used them before, you've just got to step into it very carefully. And and I always say be, be a bit on the conservative side to start with. And then, then you might try something. You might make, for example, some shortbread biscuits and put a little bit of lemon myrtle in them. That's a really nice combo lemon myrtle work that works well there and if you make something say well okay I could have put a little bit more in or "Mm, it's a little bit strong work out your own judgment Uh, you know a lot of recipes around will you know give you that guidance but then again it comes down to your own sort of peculiarities with your own flavor judgment as well and your families yeah is it the same with making oils where when when I'm making oils anyway if I am using fresh matter Mm. That's wilted for a little bit. Yep. I need two twice the amount as when I'm using dried plant matter. Is it the same thing with cooking? Do you need less when it's dry? Um, yeah, I think you do because the drying does tend to concentrate the flavors quite a lot. So yeah, I think I think sometimes it's always interesting. Um, I know a lot of the chefs always like the fresh fresh leaf and that's not always possible, just like you know a lot of the fruits that I supply are frozen because we have to, pick them when when the season's there and then try and store them for however long until they're sold out pretty much. <laughs> but it's it's the same thing. But, I mean, sometimes I find with the leaves, I've cooked with lemon myrtle leaves both on the dried variety and also fresh, and that flavour does still come through fairly strongly. Perhaps when it's more concentrated, yeah, you do get that flavour and you get – there's always a, just a slight – change in flavour from the fresh as well, just like with any herbs, if you're cooking with um, coriander as distinct fresh to dried, tarragon fresh to dried, you, there, there is a slight change in flavour. Overall, the, the basics are there, but you do you do notice that little bit and, and the herbs and spices that we have, yeah, that, that's still there as well. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How much do you rely on your nose when you're out in the bush foraging or, or hunting for food? Yes. How much do you rely on your nose to tell you if you should or should not eat that? Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, if I don't know what it is, I don't eat it. I mean, if even if it smells nice. I mean, I was I was up in Arnhem Land and I was walking through the countryside with with an Aboriginal lady. She she knew everything just so well. And I'd be smelling things and saying, "Wow, this is this is this is beautiful. This is great." Oh no, not quite yet, not quite yet. You know, I, I think you just have to be careful. Yeah, you know, you can. I mean, sometimes um, if I see things and I think, "Yeah, I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty safe. I might give it a go." But I wouldn't recommend it right. for other people. <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd probably say, "Okay, I, yeah, look, I think we should be right here." And I'd try. Oh yeah, that tastes all right. But yeah, I I wouldn't recommend it. And, and yeah, for other people to do that. Or I wouldn't recommend to other people saying, well, I've had it and I'm still here, so you, right. know, you can eat <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd be very careful and, and I think you have to respect the plants and and the pungency of what of what their flavours and their essential oils are all about. Mm. Now, I noticed that in a lot of the ingredients that you have in the book, not a lot of roots are used. Do any of these plants utilise the root? When I wrote that book, a lot of the, the roots and the tubers sort of weren't that prevalent then. We, we just couldn't get a lot. So my focus was very much on the herbs and spices and some of the, the fruits and berries. So the idea, again, came down to with the book is if people read it, that they should be able to go out and get them from somewhere, get them from me or get them from other, other suppliers quite easily. Um, I'm finding now that things like some of the tubers and some of the root crops you know they're starting to be grown more, and they probably will start to seep in more and more into into consumption. But when that book was written, they just weren't commonly found. It's starting to get more common now. It's yeah. funny, you know, dandelion, which is I regret every single time that I've ever just seen dandelion as a weed because they're really incredible. Yeah, and dandelion tea now of the from the root is becoming really popular, and that's that's a fairly recent rise, I think. So I wonder if there's just this new wave of people, you know how they like to eat, how we like to eat tail to nose or whatever the saying mm. is. Um, I wonder if that's also happening with plants now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, I think it probably is. I think people are saying, well, if we can eat this, what else, what are, what are the parts of the plant we can eat? And, you know, logically we're starting to think a lot more about that. Whereas before it was always just, you know, pick the bit off the top, something like that. Right. So yeah, I think we are. And I think more and more tubers, beautiful. Some of, the, some of them are absolutely fantastic, really interesting. I mean, when I was up north again, I, we, were, we were pulling um, water lilies out of the water and we're trying different things that tasted a bit like crunchy celery and all these amazing flavours that I hadn't tried before. And again, I wouldn't have known about them unless, unless this lady had, you know, told me and, and you know, I'd wander, I wandered into this big marshy water with her I was a bit nervous, actually. Especially <laughs> I mean, up there. Well, she was very confident. and That you wouldn't be eaten by a crocodile? Yeah, I was yeah. a bit scared. <laughs> and I thought, 
okay, she's really confident. I should be fine. And because I took my shoes off and pulled my jeans up past my knees and I'm squishing in this mud out towards these beautiful water lilies. And um, I'm thinking, if I feel something wriggle under my toes, I'm just going to die. I'm really going to die. <laughs> I, was, I was really nervous. And it was funny because just before I walked in, one of the one of the other um, young Aboriginal girls, she said, here, take this knife. And she gave me this big, long knife. It was sort of like a big, long crocodile done daylight knife, you know. And I've got this knife in there. Of course, they were killing themselves laughing at my expense, but okay, I was nervous and I didn't really care. I thought, let them laugh. And I'm, and I'm tucked in behind this lady with this knife and I'm walking along and I'm thinking, what's that? What's that? You know, and she was, she was laughing too, but I thought, well, I have to have that confidence in her. So we walked through, we did it, and then we got out again and that was fine. Nothing happened. But I tell you what, it was, it was quite confronting because I just hadn't experienced anything like that before and I knew that I had to. I thought, I'm up here, I'm with these guys and I do trust them 100%. They know what they're doing. Um, you know, and she's saying to me, well, there's a lot more crocodiles up here now than there used to be and I'm going, oh, really? <laughs> Have you been pretty accepted coming into that culture? I know mm-hmm. that it's a really secretive culture. I mean, I even when I podcasted Nigel, he didn't want to share too much and mm-hmm. he was criticized of trying to sell tourism which is fair i can it definitely did sound like that in the podcast but i know nigel and know that he mm-hmm. just there are certain things that they don't want to share yeah um and i always think that it would be hard to be accepted into a village or have a, a woman bring you out into the bush have you had a hard time adjusting or, or being no, invited out not not really at all no i've never i mean it, it, before i go up or go out back anywhere, I always get permission to go out there. It's not a matter of just, you know, walking out onto someone else's land. It'd be just like you and me walking to someone else's home, you know. You get permission. They know what I'm about. Um, most of them know me pretty well now anyway, so that's not a problem. But I've, I, I've never had problems. Always respectful, though. You, you can't go out there and, you know, I'm out there to learn and, and to observe. But I find, I mean, there are things, there's certainly things that are still um, information that, that they don't want to share. And that was something I learned very much through from the artwork, where the artists will tell the story of their dreaming or their background, the things that they're responsible for, and it comes out on that painting. But sometimes the painting is overpainted. So the whole story is told. That's their responsibility to maintain the integrity of that story. But then they'll overpaint it so some elements can't be told because they are very private and very secretive. And that's just to go on for people who have earned the right to actually have that knowledge. So so someone coming in cold really hasn't earned that right to have that knowledge. You, you have to really you know, go go through the process within the community. That's exactly um, what he said, mm, almost verbatim. Yeah, yeah. So that, so, and and through the artwork, I learned a heck of a lot. You know, it was it was, it was a major education for me. It comes down to respect, really. Well, I find that you laced respect throughout the whole book, mm. and I I loved in the opening. You do talk about commercialization and profiting off of other people and their history. Is there any resentment or pushback from? the, you know, quote-unquote white guy profiting off of off of this sort of information? You do. Uh, look, I do read from time to time in the press um, where, where there is, you know, people do talk about that. I think, look, I'm not saying everything. It's not a perfect world and I'm not saying every, everything that's handled is handled in, in, in the best possible way. I sincerely hope 
from my own point of view that I handle things in a respectful way and move forward in, in that way. And if I don't, I would like people to communicate that with me. And whatever I do when I work with community, you know, everything I do, I go back and say, are you okay with this? Is this fine? You know, I don't put any, for example, images of people up on my Instagram page that they don't know about. I don't automatically go in and start taking pictures and say, oh, I'm going to flick these around. It's just, it's just not done. It's disrespectful. So nothing that I've, I've done doesn't get the okay, you know, back from community. I think when Aboriginal arts started to come to the fore and probably, you know, maybe we're looking at the sort of early to mid-90s when Aboriginal art really started to blossom out. You know, there was a lot of negative stuff happening then about Aboriginal art. Um, I think some of it was justified and, and, and I think some of it wasn't justified because I think there was a lot of art galleries that were very passionate about what they're doing and really wanted to to do the right thing and work with the artists. And at that stage there was a lot of negative things where people felt that the profiteering was happening. I think probably what they didn't understand was was the way that uh, what, the way that things worked and uh, you know any any gallery that worked they worked with either the community center the individual artists or sometimes families that were looking after those artists and looking after their interests and if you're doing it that way you can always sort of step along the right path and and know and know what's what um, i think with the native food industry i think in a funny sort of way it's grown in the same vein but maybe that we've learned a lot through the way that the art industry just it not just blossomed it just really went wild there for a while because we had international tension on indigenous art and it was always fascinating for me working in the gallery where I found that people came in from two very different directions one one lot of people would come in and look at paintings and really want to know the story about the artwork they really wanted to know a lot more about the art, which led the way to the culture. Other people would come in and say, I really don't, I'm not interested in the culture. This is just great art. These artists are amazing. I mean, both in their own own mind were quite respectful of the of the artist and the painting, but they came in from two very different directions. But then what I found was that those that really love the artwork, would say, wow, there's a whole lot more to these paintings. There's, there's a story behind it. And so they started to get and want to get more and more involved in the story. What more can you tell us about the painting? And they wanted to learn more and more about the culture. Those that came in from from the story point of view said, gee, these really are beautiful paintings. And then they started to have respect for the artists. As artists, they evolved and evolved and so in some cases evolved from a very traditional art form to sort of really wild contemporary paintings that were absolutely amazing, but they still held the integrity of the story there. So those people that came in from Poles Apart gradually merged together with, the, with this brilliant understanding. So for me, the native food industry has kind of – move forward with a lot of that kind of background in mind. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of parallel there, isn't there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can you can come in wanting to know the history and the culture and the background of a food, or you can just eat it and go, geez, that was good. I don't really care how it got here, but I would it, like some more. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that thing happens. And by that, it starts to allow us to have a lot more understanding of the of the original people of this country and and what they did because it was a very strict system it was a very well organized system right throughout the country a lot of different languages a lot happening so i think we're now starting to really appreciate 
what we've got. And hopefully we'll move forward a lot more with that, yeah. I'd like to see this spread worldwide. I mean, I know in North Mm. America we obviously try to uh, celebrate our plants as well. Yes. Uh, And I'm painfully aware that people listening right now who would like to access a lot of these plants and can't, it might be mildly frustrating. I'd I'd like to do another one of these on, on North American plants for people listening. Um, in North America, we've got a lot of trees that like alder, for example, they've got little catkins, mm-hmm. you know, the little um, buds, yep. the buds, they're yep. catkins. And they, when they're green anyway, they are a high protein source. Mm-hmm. Do And you can dehydrate them. You can add them into your stews to thicken them up. Does Australia have anything similar to that? I don't know. Catkins is not a term that... You know, I, I know I'm familiar with the term buds, yes. Look, a lot of, I say, for example, water seed, high in protein. You know, some, some of the seeds, there's been, there's been a lot of research done, scientific research done on a certain number of species. We'd like to see a whole lot more and gradually we will get around to it. Just showing all the medicinal properties, the proteins, the, the trace elements, all those kind of things that are happening with them. And, yeah, natives are, are certainly jam-packed with it. I think the other thing too is, you know, they're growing in native soil so they're getting all those beautiful nutrients out of it you know they haven't been tampered with in any way shape mm-hmm. or form so you've you've got really good healthy plants and um yeah that goes through right through like we're talking about not only the fruits but the leaves and and the whole thing so a lot more work's being done and i find now in this country that where we're, we're using traditional knowledge and scientific knowledge together. Both are working together. So how good is that? You know, it's <laughs> finally we're here. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we want to move an industry forward to sort of really have something amazing, unique that we can we can really um, shout about. I think. Yeah. Well, back to invasives real quick. I don't know if you know this, but the pine tree, and I know Australia has got mm-hmm. pine forests. I've got this recipe at home for gingerbread cookies or gingerbread using pine bark as flour. Wow. So they take and dehydrate pine bark yeah. and they grind it up and you can use a percent of it in your baking as a flour. Do you know if there are any trees here that you could do that with? I actually don't, no. No bark. I mean, we use the paper bark a lot for cooking. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is the paper bark tree? It's not a eucalypt tree, is it? One just out. If you look out the window, you'll you'll see one there. Yeah, we've got them at home, um, back by our place up in New South Wales, but I don't know what they are. Exactly. It's a melaleuca. Oh, okay. So, um, and yeah, at different times of year, obviously the bark is just sort of stripped stripped off, and it's it's amazing. But it's in a whole lot of different layers, so you can while you might strip a really thick piece of bark off, you can thin it out into really paper thin layers and and cook with it. So I find when I when I pull some bark off, I usually pull it off, um, soak it in water and you get it nice and soft. So that sort of, you know, when you're cooking creates a nice sort of steamy effect. Mm. And then put fish, vegetables, whatever whatever you want to cook in it, and then just wrap it up, put it in the oven or in the barbecue. Oven, look, if I've got little bits and pieces of bark, I might put some foil around it to hold the bark together. The other times, you know, a casserole dish, for example, just layer the casserole dish with bark and then put put your food on top of that and then bark on top and and put a, a layer of foil on top of that. Quite easy to do. So Yeah, but you don't put the paper bark in the casserole. You're just not a, not as in it. just cooking in it. Yeah. yeah. So you really want those beautiful sort of aromatic, lovely flavours to go through. Generally, um, I mean, I find it's better when it's that little bit damp and then you get this lovely sort of smoky flavour coming through. It's fantastic. It's like our cedar plank cooking. Yeah. Got it. Got it. That's the other thing I learned about bark in North America is 
the inner bark mm. is uh, also high in protein and, and was used as a survival food. Wow, isn't that amazing? It's just incredible for, to me that we've drifted so far from mm. who we were as species that people can get lost in the woods today and die and not realize that they're walking by all of these plants that could keep them alive. Exactly. I mean, sometimes it's got water in it, it's housing water, it's housing syrup. So, you know, there can be all sorts of different things that can happen in trees. Yeah. The more you realize, the more you learn how little knowledge we have of, of so many plants. Yeah. What were you saying in your book about scurvy? Was that the worry? Warrigal, what's the green? Warrigal greens. Yeah. Yeah, well, warrigal greens, they grow, once they're planted, they just, beautiful ground cover. But they're a bit like spinach. Yeah, you know, New Zealand spinach, is that New what they Zealand call it? New Zealand spinach, yeah, leaf, leafy greens. And, uh, yeah, when Captain Cook came out here, his men were suffering from scurvy. So he they, they ate the warrigal greens and that really helped, you know, with the vitamin C content in them. Did the Aboriginals or did people uh, from this land before do any sort of preserving or preservation of food? They did a lot, actually, a whole lot. I, I think it was a very well-organized culture going way, way back. I mean, thing, well, things like bush tomato, yeah, they would know that they were dried out so they could sort of save them for quite a while. Wattle seeds, again, um, they knew about drying them out and, and even, you know, putting them on the fire to get a, a beautiful extra flavor from it. A lot of the things that, um, say, for example, with wattle seed, they might mix that with some of the tree resins or some fats, and then they generally put them up in the tree to dry so that then they would have them saved and preserved. So tree resins, um, animal fats, all sorts of things were used to help, you know, preserve drying things out. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm so happy that you brought up the resins mm. because I only knew that they, I knew that they used them to tan hides mm-hmm. um, and I knew that they used them to attach barbs onto their hooks when they were fishing, mm-hmm. but they did use them for, and for medicine, but I didn't know if they used them for any culinary aspects. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a lot of them did. Um, I mean, tree resins can be used, you know, and, and you can chew them. There's all, there's all manner of different ones um, that can be used. They can have all the different leaves and ants or anything like that mixed in with them. So yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you have an ant, and I'll wrap it up at this. You have an ant recipe. I've used, um, and I've eaten green ants, yeah. Can you tell me about this? Because I was absolutely, I mean, anyone listening to this has got to follow you on Instagram because it's (laughs) just so incredible. But what is this ant recipe that I saw? I can't remember which one was was the one you saw on, on the Instagram page, but with green ants, I mean, they're amazing little things. What's a green ant compared to a red ant? I mean, besides color, it's besides not meant color, to be a stupid question. No, well, look, green ants—they um, grow, they are absolutely everywhere up north on the trees. Oh, uh, they're north. Yeah. Okay. So are, you, are they green? They are green. They're quite beautiful, and there is a picture of them on my Instagram page as well. They're actually this beautiful, beautiful green color. Um, I know when I was up there, I was trying to take some pictures of them, you know, to get a really nice little happy snap. And and I was standing there was with the same Aboriginal lady that was taking me around. She just stood well, I said, Oh yeah, you can take a picture of that. And I'm trying to get the right angle and I'm you know how you do, you pull a few leaves back and you got it there. And I'm snapping away and then all of a sudden I looked down and my arms were covered in ants. Oh no, do they they would bite. And then yeah, then they started biting. Oh. Well, I was jumping around and they were Everyone was killing themselves laughing. There was no such thing as sympathy, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> I go, ah, ah, you know, as, as you do, going half stupid all the time. And these ants were everywhere. And they, yeah, they, they nasty little things. They really 
bit. But anyway, I did get some good pictures. But since then, I've a lot of chefs really love using green ants, and they have this kind of this minty, lemony, citrusy flavour when you eat them. Um, and so, high in protein. Again, we talked about protein. So they you know, insects are actually really good. This is going to be my next trip. My listener has watched me go down from from eating fish and soon to be all parts of fish, to hunting, to bush. I, I think the last final step in all of this is I'm going to have to start eating bugs. I'm just going to complete the circle. <laughs> yeah, eating bugs is, is is amazing. I mean, sometimes, you know, it can be a mind over matter thing, but, but you know, kind of get over it because it's a really interesting journey with, with, with some of these things. Well, true story, Jude, that, that's how it started for me. When I was really mm. young, somebody came back from Australia and they had brought over all of these pops, these lollipops yeah. that all had these enormous bugs in them. One had a grub, one had a, uh, a, a cricket, <laughs> and I started eating them. Mm. And it really was one of the things that I remember most about thinking – you know, maybe I don't need to eat like everyone else does because I'm quite enjoying this. Granted, yeah. they were covered in sugar, but... Yeah. Okay, so t- the ants, so how do you collect them? Well, the ants are collected by the community. So generally what they do, as far as I know, is put a big bag over the branch and then they can cut the branch off and then they put it straight into the freezer and um, then and then they're frozen and then they drop off from, from the branch and then they, they collect them from there and keep them frozen and then send them down to me and uh, away we go. Will you sell them? Yeah. So people overseas right now could buy some ants from you? It would be. I'd have to send them over frozen. Oh, uh, they are frozen. Okay, they're yeah. not dehydrated or anything? No, I don't dehydrate them, no. So that they are frozen and, and really they have to be kept I mean, they die when they're frozen, um, but they really have to be kept in that state until you use them. Do they hibernate? Will they come back to life? No. Okay. They, they, <laughs> they don't. Someone said that to me once and I, I said, look, I've seen plenty that have been frozen that have defrosted and no, they haven't. So it's it's a nice, easy transition for them, I think, actually. And, and then they're just used, you know, a lot of the chefs will put them on top of I've seen them on top of watermelon. I've seen them on top of fish. You know, they, they use them as a, a bit of a decoration, but they do have those flavors there as well. So they are utilized for that 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 lovely little flavor. It's a bit like eating a little bit of popcorn too. There, that is amazing. What about grubs? They're supposed to taste like peanut butter. Yeah, apparently, I actually haven't eaten grubs. I haven't come to come to that level of 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 trying those or that level of bravery of, of really. When I say mind over matter, well, yeah, that definitely is with me, and I just haven't haven't actually done that. But again, um, I, I I was listening to a talk by by someone who is talking a lot about witchetty grubs out back, and he was sort of saying how how really nutritious that they are, and he'd eaten a lot of them, and um, yeah, so they're fantastic. But for me, I look at this really grub and it, yeah, mind over matter. They're so like an oversized maggot. They are. That's what you, if you you know you think of everything in Australia being bigger. I imagine a super size. Yep, maggot. Yep. Any other bugs that you sell? No, they're the only ones. Okay. So yeah, we're just <laughs> we're just getting into those, and they're they're really popular. Yeah. And um, they're a good talking point too on a plate. Yeah, yeah. Though they definitely got my attention. <laughs> uh, well, Jude, look, I'm I'm aware that I've taken up a ton of your time, and you're extremely busy. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to add that I may have missed? Um, gosh, no. I I think we've covered a lot of territory there. I'm trying. I'll probably think about all sorts of things once once we're, we've stopped talking and we, we've. But um, 
No, I, I think the native food industry in Australia now is in a really healthy place. I think it's in a great place um, where, you know, as far as from growers, from from value adders, everyone, I think we're all working together in a way that we haven't done before, which is really lovely to see. For me, the, the big thing is looking at that full circle from harvest all the way through um, to, to the end user. And that's a really important important thing. I mean, to that effect, um, I've started working with the community at Manangrida, um, you know, where we're actually value adding at community level, making a beautiful spice mix. So the community go out and, and um, harvest the kakadu plums, they dry them up there and mill them. And then, we, you know, we've created a recipe there where that's done. And then it's, you know, we bring it down south to to sell it. I mean, certainly they sell it up there. And, and it was a recipe also made that we, the first instance, we wanted was the community really love it and they were the ones we made a few different spice mixes and this particular one was the one that they liked so they are eating a lot up there it's it's a nice healthy recipe that they can use on any of their their fish chicken meats anything like that or vegetables um and now we're selling it you know it's only just happened so that took a while to get going um just getting everything exactly right all the little details that you have to do whenever you create a new product and and so it's to me it's working with community it's working with you know farmers growers remote remote communities, just bringing native food to the forefront and, and really starting to introduce it to, to everyone. I mean, wouldn't it be great in this country and, and likewise in, in North America where, where native food is just part of everyone's pantry, the way, you know, so many of the well-known, you know, nutmeg, cinnamon, cloves, garlic – Sit, sit in a pantry where everyone considers it's part of their everyday pantry. That we have natives, and I part of that part of that um, you know herbs and and things like that. Part of that system, I think that's what we need. It's a win-win. You know, we feel so disconnected, or so many people feel mm. disconnected mm. to the land. Consumerism, it would it would put a halt on a lot of the packaging. Yes, it'd be better for you. Yeah, you'd be eating in season, and studies show that that's better for you to be eating in season. Correct, and you just have a whole newfound respect for. Your land. Yeah, I think you learn so much more through food. I mean, food's something everyone enjoys, let's face it. It's 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 a big it's a big deal. We we love looking at food, we love smelling it, we love tasting it, and we all have our favorite dishes. And to be able to eat what is growing naturally, it just makes sense to me that we we utilize the food that that's there and the and the native food that is also going to look after the land as well. So yeah, that that to me just seems totally logical. Well, thank you for leading the change. Pleasure. Great to talk with you, April. Really lovely. Likewise. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 